You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Uh, we're doing that sermon series. Uh, we're doing spending four weeks talking about uh, how the Bible portrays the evil within, within us, inside of us. And so we are looking at how the ancients thought about our bodies uh, and our body parts. They would talk about our, our, our parts of our body as ways to name the evil that is within us. And so we're looking at that. As always, some questions and answers at the end. If you are interested in that thing, uh, there's the phone number. Feel free to text. If I receive any, I will do my best to answer those. If I don't know, I will let you know. Uh, but today we are talking about the heart. The heart. The heart. And we're going to go through a journey of the Bible. So we're going to spend a, a long time on the introduction so that we can see what is going on with this thing called the heart. We can see what's going on with how the Bible thinks about the heart because it's definitely different than how we understand this thing called the heart. Uh, differences between our view of the heart and the Bible's view of the heart. Our view is that the heart is the figurative seat of emotion. We know in our head that our emotions are up here, largely, right, in our brain. But when we talk about our emotions, we often talk about them uh, as though they are right here, right, in our hearts. Uh, this is different than how the Bible talks about them. Uh, we talk about it as like things like brokenhearted, right, which is actually a phrase we get from the Bible. Love with all my heart, pour my heart out. Yeah. Uh, what else do we got? Wear my heart on my sleeve, bleeding heart. I threw that one in there because it's political season. Follow your heart, right? We understand these phrases. These are phrases that we have in our culture about our heart. In Judaism, the primary seat of emotion is your stomach. Your splankna is what they would call the word we get our we get our word spleen from. And so when we think about when they think about emotions, they're thinking about it down here which makes a lot more sense to me, right? This is what I'm trying to shut off, right? When I'm doing my coping habits, it's my lower extremities. And we still have some of these phrases in our, in our culture, like uh, butterflies in my stomach, right? Uh, but by and large, it happens right here for them. The heart was so much more than just the seed of emotion. For the Bible, well, let's get into it. And before we do, a quick reminder, I'm not trying to convince you to view your body this way. That's not the goal of this. I'm not trying to convince us that this is how you should view your body. I'm just trying to show you how they did so that when you read biblical passages about heart, you'll have a better understanding of what's going on. And I don't think Jesus thinks that this is the way the body works. I think he's speaking culturally into uh, people who understand the body in this way, right? But I think it's important that we understand this so we can understand God's word better but the heart was the center of who you are. When we talk, uh, we're very Western. So when we talk, our most important points are either at the beginning or at the end. We're very much, we like things at the beginning or the end. We like things on the edges. But in Judaism, they loved talking about things in the center. Their most important point was in the middle. It makes you listen harder. makes you try to discern what's going on. And this is true about most of the things in their culture. They loved the center. They thought that that was the vital part. And so what's at the center of our body and their, and their idea of physiology is this, this heart thing. 
This becomes the center of who you are. This is where your thoughts come from. This is where your big emotions come from, the basic ones like joy and love and disgust. Uh, this is the seat of your soul. This is where your soul resided, your spirit, when they talked about that. This is where your will is. When you willed something, it, it came from your heart. Ultimately, this is you, your inner self, stuff like that. This is the way they talked about it. Like when we read passages where it says Mary pondered all these things in her heart at Christmas time. Because she's thinking in her thinker right here, right? Uh, or Jesus says, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? It's because this was the center of who they were. It was the center of all activity in their life. It had everything going on. It was the inner self, who you are, what makes you, you, which is a different way of thinking about it. I know it's not totally foreign. Like, I think we could get there uh, in our culture. It's not like, wow, that's mind-blowing. But I think it's important to realize that we're not just talking about emotions. We're talking about heart. We're talking about all of you. Everything that makes you, you. Which is why we get this well-known proverb, keep your heart with all vigilance or guard your heart for from it flow the springs of life. They didn't eat blood. You were, it, it was too sacred. That blood around your body, right, that was wildly important to them. Your thoughts. This all the time, right? Like, though we are created in God's image after the fall, after humanity kind of rebels and tries to take things on in their own self in the garden, the fall, uh, our hearts uh, started. This is where the evil is housed for us. This is where we uh, become marred. This is where we become. Uh, unfathomably broken. It resides in our hearts. And in Genesis 6, at the beginning of Noah and the flood, this is how that story begins. The Lord saw the wickedness of humankind, saw that it was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. You see it all, right? Thoughts, but their hearts housed the evil. And that is how that story begins. But God rescues a family, someone that he saw that had a good and pure heart and began the thing again and leads into the building of a community. This is my picture for the, to outline Israel. There's a bunch of people down there, God leading them by a pillar of light or fire. And when God tries to create this new community in the desert wilderness, God says, then the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may live. So what the hope is, is that humanity is unfathomably broken and, and evil resides in our hearts and God takes his people out into the desert and tries to begin a new community in which he's gonna try to cut 
out the evil that resides within us. We know circumcision. We know what that is. I don't need to go into the details. Uh, And that was a sign. Males cutting their genitalia was a sign of their covenant with God, but God wanted something more because outward signs didn't affect the inward issues that were going on in our hearts. And so the promise was that in this community, God was going to cut out the evil in their hearts. But so many times they failed. So many times they didn't go through with it. This is my picture of King David. The reason, one of the reasons why King David is considered a great king is because he asks God, examine me, God. Look at my heart. Put me to the test. Know my anxious thoughts. Look to see if there's any idolatrous way in me. Then lead me on the eternal path. One of the reasons why David is considered good is because he asks God to do the work inside of him that God ultimately wants to do in all of us. Or summing that up very, in a short way, create a clean heart for me. God. This is why David is ultimately regarded as good, writing his poetry, lamenting before God about his broken heart. This is Jeremiah. Later on in Israel's history, he's considered the weeping prophet because he's seen the people go totally awry. That evil in their hearts has has basically manifested itself on the outside. They are sacrificing their children to false gods, and he saw the total depravity of the people, and he would write, The heart is deceitful above all things. Irreversibly cursed. Who can understand it? That's the problem. And I think that's where the Bible wants to speak to us. Because sometimes when we think about our hearts, or when we think about our true selves, or we think about our inner selves, we think ultimately that that's good, right? We could just follow our hearts. And the Bible wants to let you know that whatever it is you're thinking about on the inside of you, it is marred. It has issues, and you can't fix it yourself. It is deceitful. It will lie to you. And and here's how I know it'll lie to you is because we all know bad people who make very bad decisions. But I think every one of us thinks ultimately, deep down, we're good, and we're doing the right things most of the time. And you can look at somebody and be like, that's definitely not the right thing most of the time, right? Uh, But there's something inside of us that makes us think we're ultimately good good and we're ultimately trying to do good but the people around us are like your life is falling apart whatever it is you're following on the inside it must be deceitful maybe above all things irreversibly cursed but there was always hope the prophets always gave a sense of hope jeremiah gives us a sense of hope he says time is coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with my people it won't be like the covenant i made with the ancestors i'll put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts And I will be their God and they will be my people and they will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is Ezekiel looking at God coming in the storm. And he says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I will remove your stony heart from your body and replace it with a living one. So God has promised hope among these prophets that one day, someday, this thing within us that houses evil, but it also houses everything about us would be remade, would be made new would be made so that we can have relationship with God in a whole new way. Not just a new emotional center, a whole new self, mind, will, spirit. And ultimately, for us, as Jesus followers, we think that comes in Jesus, right? We think that comes in the person of Christ. Jesus says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. So he agrees with the Old Testament here. Murders, adultery, sexual sins, theft, false testimonies, and insults. Jesus says, for the people's hearts have become calloused. 
But if they can understand with their hearts and turn, I would heal them. So it's something about Jesus where he claims to be the one that can heal this thing that's broken inside of us, that he can cut out the evil, that he can do what God had promised long ago. We find it in Jesus. You know how I preach head, heart, hands. What does the Bible want us to know with our head, experience with our hearts, and do with our hands? Uh, three points help us to have a holistic faith moving from here to here to here. Uh, no field do. Here's what I think the Bible wants us to know, even though we just did like a thousand Bible verses about heart. Uh, I think the Bible wants us to know is that God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. First John three twenty says, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. That's good news. I think the hard part for me is that I have to wrap my head around the idea that my heart might be broken. And I don't mean that in like a relationship way, a loving kind of romantic relationship way. I mean that in like a, there's something wrong, something deceptive, something going on at the core of me that needs fixing. But even if I can't fully grasp that, I can grasp that God is greater than whatever it is inside of me that's broken. And what I was thinking about this week, I don't know if it totally lands. I don't know if the story is going to fit perfectly, so bear with me. Uh, but I was reminded this week by my wife that I hit one of these brand new cars one time um, with my 2001 Honda Odyssey van. And here's the story. We were going to visit someone in the hospital, and it was dark, and we had to drive to the Bay Area, and it was late, and I had a van full. I'm making a lot of excuses. I had a van full of kids, and this car was black, and it was in the shadows, and it was at this hotel, and I was backing up so that we can go get some food, um, which is easily my favorite thing to do when you travel, because it's food that you don't have around you, right? You get to do... I might not even like the food as much as I like the food that we have here, but I have to have something different. So we were going to get some food. I was excited. It was chaotic. And this car was in the dark, in the shadows, not around any of the lights. No cars all the way around. And I backed up slowly, right? It's parked. I backed up. And the corner of my bumper hit its bumper. Now, uh, obviously, everyone in the car gasped, which is always like the worst, right? When you're like, it wasn't that bad. Okay? Why are you gasping? Your reaction to what happened wasn't necessarily indicative of what actually happened. I got out and it looked like there were some few, a few scratches. And I was like, my first thought is like, you could just drive away. That'd be great, right? Um, I'm telling you about, I'm being real with you guys. So I did not do that. I wrote down the license plate, make and model of the vehicle. I went to the hotel lobby because you have to give them the make and model of your vehicle and you have to write the license plate down. And I said, hey, I need to talk to this person who owns this vehicle. I backed it. There's some tiny scratches, like barely noticeable. <laughs> Is there any way you could like call them and let them know so that we can exchange information? And the lady goes, there's no record of that vehicle supposing to be in this hotel. They did not check that vehicle in. It's not supposed to be here. And I was like, what? And she's like, I think you got off scot-free. I think you get to get away with this. And I was like, I do too. Like it wasn't supposed to be there, right? Maybe it's private property. I don't even know what we could do with this situation. So I went and ate Chick-fil-A, and it was delicious. But I felt guilty. I went to sleep. I felt guilty. I woke up the next morning. I felt guilty. So this part of my heart that was deceptive was like, you, you're off. And this part of my heart that's like, I wouldn't, that golden rule stuff, right, of like, I would not want someone to do that to my new charger. Is that a challenger? I don't know what it is. Uh, and so I began writing a note on the pad for the hotel with a pen. 
and I was going to go put it on his windshield, praying that he already drove away, right? Just if he drove away, there's nothing I can do at that point. Um, and I look out the window. By the way, my room is facing this car, right? I can see it from the window. And he's out there looking at it, showing his wife that somebody backed into his car. And so now I have to decide whether or not I'm going to go talk to this guy or if I'm just going to let it go. And there's so much of me that wanted to let it go. But I walked out there, and I talked to the guy. So sweet. He was like, I don't even know if we have to call our insurances. And I was like, that'd be great, man. That'd be so sweet. And he totally did. And I'm trying not to harbor resentment about it. He was like, I don't even know, man. I don't even think it's not even that big a deal. And I was like, I, I agree 1,000%. Ultimately, torn that whole time, he was very sweet. And we did exchange information, and we got it figured out. And now every time my wife sees one of these cars, she's like, hey, look, just to, like, drive it home. But I was so torn, and there was every inclination was like, how do we get out of this? How do, like, what lie do you have to tell? Like, how do you just... How do you just not care? How do you suppress some of that nagging conscience that you have? Everything within me wanted to be deceptive and wanted me to get out of it because I don't like being in trouble and I don't like doing the wrong thing. But then there was that other part of me, right, that I'm hoping is the Holy Spirit and transformation and the work that Jesus has done in my life that has changed the way I think about things. And that side won out, and it doesn't all the time. I'm not trying to give myself props here, but just trying to give an illustration about how there's so much division in us there's so much deception in us there's so much of like that garden stuff where adam and eve are hiding from god because they broke the rules and god's like where did you go and there's so much of that in us where we just want to hide we mess up we just want to get away we want to get rid of it our hearts are fundamentally flawed but we are promised changed hearts through Jesus. And that's the good news. And that's what God wants you to know. That that stuff ultimately gets resolved in and through Jesus. What does God want us to experience or feel in the midst of this? Uh, God wants you to have a pure heart. In fact, this is, I mean, far and away, I, I could give you 20 verses where pure heart is, is the goal when we're talking about hearts. Pure heart. I got a few verses for us. Psalm 24, who can ascend the Lord's mountain? Who can stand in the holy sanctuary? The one with clean hands and a pure heart. James 4, at the end of the Bible, come near to God and God will come near to you. Wash your hands and purify your hearts. James echoing Psalm 24. 1 Timothy 1, the goal of instruction, the goal of what I'm doing right now is love from a pure heart. And lastly, Jesus, Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are those who have pure hearts because they will see God. What God wants you to experience in your relationship with Jesus is a pure heart, a purified heart, a clean heart. And what I love about the Bible is that the Bible starts off by saying, here's a list of the things that you have to do to become ritually pure, to become ritually clean. Can't touch this, can't eat this, can't do this, don't, 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 no, no, no. But as the Bible progresses, 
that becomes a new way of thinking about ritual purity, a new way of thinking about this thing called purity. What happens is Isaiah, this prophet, walks into God's temple, and usually you had to do this long list of things before you can go into God's house. But what happens is Isaiah has this vision where he's there, and God flies down, his seraphim, his angel, flies down with this burning coal, and it touches Isaiah's lips, and the, and the, and the seraphim, this angel, says, you are pure now. You are forgiven. Your sins are atoned for. There's something about God's, it's reversed halfway through the Bible. You had to become ritually clean to go in. And then in Isaiah, the temple, God's presence starts ritually purifying people. And Ezekiel has this vision where this water starts running out of the temple. It trickles out like drops and it ends up into a huge river. And and wherever the river goes, there's life. Now, now God's presence is the thing that purifies people We don't have the long list of rules uh, to have to be purified. God is the one doing that in us. It comes from this Greek word, katharos, and we probably know the word cathartic, right, or catharsis, to purify, to binge. It means to be clean, essentially. But there isn't a long list of rules anymore that you have to do to become clean. Jesus is doing that work in you. We went to the beach this week, and let me tell you, I love the ocean. It's my number one destination. Let me also tell you, I hate sand. Hate it. I hate it. I, I go to the beach like this, except my shoes are tied tighter. I do not, I'm not shorts. I don't have flip-flops. I'm not a sand guy. Um, and we let our kids play. And I watched them throw sand at each other for five hours. Every time I'm just like... And then I told them it was time to leave, and they didn't want to leave. And I said, listen, here's the thing you need to learn about Dad. We'll go to the beach. You could play all day. You could bury yourself in sand. You could throw sand at each other. You can shove it in your bathing suits. I don't care. But when we leave, this is the protocol. You have to lay down in the ice-cold water and get all the sand off of you. You have to walk slowly so that only sand gets on your feet and you're not kicking it all over yourself. I have bottles that I filled up that we drank with ocean water. And when we get to the car, I'm making you take a bottle shower and we are washing all the sand off of you. There will be towels on the floorboard and on the seat. And not one of you are going to get sand anywhere. Then we're going to go home and we're going to carefully walk inside to the place we were renting. And everyone's taking a shower. We're all standing in the bathroom. There will be sand nowhere. Right. Ritually clean. I made them get clean before they could get in my stuff, before they could go in my, get in my beds, before they could get in my house. I made them get catharosed, right? They had to purify, especially their feet, but also their hair. I made them shampoo. Like we're getting the bathtubs covered in sand. Not fun for me, right? But I see some head shaking in agreement. So I know there's some holy people in this room right now. That's all I know. But it made me think about that when we're talking about purified hearts. We're talking about clean. And this is essentially what we're talking about. We're talking about getting that stuff out. This is what Jesus has promised to do in our hearts and in our lives. Wherever you think that resides in you, I don't know if it's up here or if it's in here or if it's everywhere, whatever it is, Jesus wants that to be your experience 
Uh, and you get to have, you, you have your fun, right? You, you had your, but at some point, Jesus is going to do the work of getting you clean, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult, and some of them might be crying. Some of you might be crying like my kids did, but we're going to get pure. How do we become pure? We become pure through proximity to Jesus, I told you. It's no longer about the rules we do. It's what Jesus has done in us, which is why James, the letter says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you, right? Wash your hands and purify your hearts. It's about the proximity of Jesus that makes us pure. What does God want us to do with this stuff, with this heart stuff? I would be, I know uh, this is a big thing. I know people think about it all the time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up. God wants us to love with our whole heart, starting with, the starting point of that is belief. And when I say belief, I also mean the word trust. This was the goal of a pure or circumcised heart when God was starting that community of Israel. That Deuteronomy 30 passage that we read, then the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. Why? So that you so that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being or soul in order that you may live. The goal of a purified heart, the goal of a circumcised heart, the goal of that evil getting flushed out of us by Jesus is that we can love more deeply and more holy. Jesus reiterates this, right, when he talks about the great commandment that he expects from all of us. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Man, I hope if you take anything away from this, when you are thinking about the greatest commandment, the one that Jesus reiterates, the first thing mentioned there is heart. And, and God is not asking us to make sure that the center of our emotions is in line or in love with God. It's not an emotional thing really at all. It's, it's so much deeper that God wants our whole selves, our thoughts, our wills, the seats of our souls he wants that, he wants that to be exuding love towards God and loving your neighbor as yourself. There is no you, right? The, the you resides here. This, this is a wholehearted love for God and neighbor. This is what Jesus asks of us. This is what God wants us to do. Not just about how we feel about God. That stuff fluctuates. That's, that's gut stuff. Not just how we feel about our neighbor, but letting this be the paradigm in which we think and view the world, in which we operate with the people around us and how we come to church and how we operate with the people in this room, that God is asking that that, that the love exude from the core of who we are. He wants our love of God to consume our whole heart self and for our neighbor too. And where do we begin? How do we begin this? That's a big ask. The Bible's clear about this. It begins with belief or trust. I'm wrapping up here. In fact, so much so I'm going to grab, in case anyone sent any text, now is the time. We've been having sound issues. So I'm going to delicately do this. We do have some questions. Uh, what do, how do we figure this out? What are we doing here? Um, how do we begin to love wholeheartedly God and neighbor with our whole self, right? Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. How we begin to love wholeheartedly and let Jesus purify this thing called our heart, uh, it, it begins with belief. It begins with trust and who God is and, and who Jesus says he is. 
And, and I have to say, this is true of all relationships, that love begins with trust. Love begins with faith. My relationship with my wife, right? We, I have to trust that these vows we're going to make, she's taking seriously and plans to live up to them. Love begins with trust is uh, Cogsworth from Beauty and the Bell. That's an exact line that he says. So if you don't believe me and you don't believe Jesus, Beauty and the, Be- Beauty and the Beast uh, will help you figure this out. This guy's name is, is John Gottman. He is the guru of love. I know it's hard to tell because he looks so academic. But seriously, if you are looking to read any books on marriage, this guy is the guy. Um, he has a, a love lab up at the University of Washington. And um, he, I mean, he, this is the phrase he says, not in this video. He says, trust is the oxygen that your relationship breeds. And he's going to tell us here about some studies about how important trust is for relationships. Here's Dr. Gottman. When we think about trust, we're really thinking about dependability, honesty. Uh, dependability is not enough, by the way. I can trust you to always be evil. That's, that doesn't quite work, right? You know, I have to trust you to be moral. I have to trust you to care about me. Uh, and it's turned out that actually when uh, social psychologists have asked people in relationships, what is the most desirable quality you're looking for in a partner when you're dating? Trustworthiness is number one. Interesting, huh? I mean, it's not, you know, being sexy or attractive. It's really being able to trust somebody. It's not being attractive, which is good news for guys like him and me, right? It's trustworthiness. Thanks for the laugh. I like that. Uh, Dr. Gottman, uh, I, I love him talking about how trust is the most important thing. And he's written some books called like What Makes Love Last? And it's how to build trust in your relationship. He says it's very simple and it's the small things. It's not the big things. It's not the like, I'll take a bullet for you. It's like when your partner talks to you, do you put down the newspaper or your phone and like listen, right? Um, But trust, trustworthiness is the beginning. And when I say trust, I mean faith. I mean these almost interchangeably. This is the beginning of, of relationship. This is how love is built in us. And I say that because that's true about our faith as well. Wholehearted love begins with trust in Jesus. I think this is my last scripture, Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and in your heart you have faith, trust, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Trusting with the heart leads to righteousness. Another word maybe we could use instead of righteousness is pure leads to a pure heart. Do you see the core of who you are? Paul is inviting us to put Jesus there. The reality that Jesus has raised from the dead, that Easter morning reality. God wants at the center of our whole lives the reality of the resurrection and throne. This is Easter stuff. That when you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, that that's the the way you view the world, that God is doing an an incredible work, that God is transforming and changing and getting rid of the evil and and fighting injustice and bringing out peace, hope, joy, and love. Like if this is what you truly believe about the world and about yourself and about your neighbors, it's going to make you think about everything differently and it's going to allow you to live into a wholehearted love, right? From there, our hearts are purified by Jesus so we can learn to love wholeheartedly, love God and neighbor with our whole self, thoughts, wills, wills, and spirits. Great. That's it. Any questions? 
how do we know if we are on the right side or on the right track or if our heart is being purified, especially when in this political season, when every side thinks they're right or has the answer? What signs can we expect for affirmation or confirmation that we are on the right track to a pure heart? Great question. I'll give you your money later for sending that great question. I think there's other ones. That's a good one. Oh, no, there are so many other ones. Oh, I think I just scrolled up too high. Um, I talked about this a little bit last week, uh, and, I'm a, and so I'm going to have to say it again. For Jesus, ultimately, your actions are, are the best indication about what's going on inside. That was true for evil eye, but that's also true for your heart. Jesus says it's, it's the heart that spills out and the evil comes, and the opposite is true, that the good stuff also comes from there. And so you're looking for fruit. This is one of Jesus' favorite metaphors. If we are a tree, the, 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 the fruit will match the roots. And so if the fruit is bad, then we know that the roots are bad, and we have some work to do. And the work to do is draw near to Jesus. Make sure that we are getting, making sure that we are getting in that proximity with Jesus so Jesus can do that purifying work. Uh, letting Jesus root out that evil within us. But you can always check your actions. The issue is uh, sometimes, and especially religious people, I'll just say, uh, we can think that being right is sometimes more important than the way we treat people, right? Because truth is very important, and God is the God of truth, and sometimes we just need to let people know the truth. Uh, but I always just think about uh, Paul's encouragement to speak the truth in love, and so it's always both, right? Kindness is important whether or not we're right. Uh, Paul says multiple times, wouldn't you rather just be wrong than, like, fight with your neighbor about this and create d peace? Like, wouldn't you rather just admit that you're wrong? There's a way in which uh, we are keeping the peace. I don't know how to always balance that because there are some real issues that we need to be truthful about, and that truth needs to be spoken. But by and large, Ultimately, you could tell what's going on in your heart by what comes out with your hands. This is why there's always the command is uh, not always, but most of the time, purify your heart is associated with clean your hands because your hands are indicative of what's going on in a deeper sense. And so um, you can keep cleaning your hands, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a, a pure heart, your hands will get dirty again. So check your hands, essentially, is the answer to that question. Thank you for the question. Here's my conclusion, and we are wrapping up. With our head, the core of us has the capacity for great evil, and that's just true of every human being, and I think we know that. All the evil we see in the world, we are totally capable of that, of great evil and deception, but God can overcome our hearts, and as we draw close to Jesus, our hearts of stone will be purified, helping us see God more clearly increasing our trust in Jesus and helping us to love God and neighbor wholeheartedly. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your ability to not only name the evil in us and help us to come to grips with it, but giving us a solution, a salvation, an answer that you are deeply invested in purifying our hearts and circumcising our hearts and rooting out the ugly, the dark, the deception, 
the dirt. Lord, we pray for clean hearts. We want the core of us to be good. We want the core of us to be loving towards others. So would you help? And Father, now as we come to a time of communion, a time of gathering around your cup, your table, your bread, would you be present with us? Would you meet us here as you promised that you always would do? And would you help us to have open eyes and ears to see that? And would this be the beginning of another journey of identifying the the dark in us and letting you root it out? And we will give you praise and thanks. Would you now pray with me the Lord's Prayer? I'm going to let Titus turn it on the screen. Pray with me now. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation.